you're wondering why in the world we're singing about Aaron and oil and running down his beard and why that's a good thing on his garments, it's because the high priest wore God's people, the 12 tribes, on his clothes. And so it's God's blessing pictured falling down on all of God's people. It's a beautiful picture. Um, but also foreign because it's a, a different culture than us. <laughs> all right, well, let's, let's turn to Judges chapter 12. We're going to read verses 1 to 15. All right, we are working through this great book of Judges. Uh, it's our last week talking about Jephthah before we move on to Samson. And I'm not that clever of a pastor to start the Samson birth narrative on Samson's bir- my Samson's birthday weekend because <laughs> he turned one yesterday. We missed it by a week. Now, we've been looking at Jephthah, the outsider, the, the one that God raised up, uh, from, pulled out of a dysfunctional family to rescue Israel. The idea that God went outside the camp to raise up somebody like Moses to save God's people. And then last week we talked about Jephthah experiencing firsthand the cost of salvation as he gave up his beloved daughter, his firstborn, his only child. Uh, to, to not sacrifice her literally, but metaphorically giving her in marriage to the Lord to serve the rest of her life. It was painful. And so as we come to Jephthah now, we're going to see, some, some more, like I said, the ugliness of division, which is going to help us see the beauty of community. And no matter what you think of judges through this study, you at least can't accuse them of being boring. <laughs> and so let's, let's look at our text and see how Israel is hardened by grace rather than melted by it. It's judges chapter 12. This is God's word. It says, the men of Ephraim were called to arms, and they crossed to Zephon and said to Jephthah, why did you cross over to fight against the Ammonites and did not call us to go with you? We will burn your house over you with fire. And Jephthah said to them, I and my people had a great dispute with the Ammonites, and when I called you, you did not save me from their hand. And when I saw you, that you would not save me, I took my life in my hand and crossed over against the Ammonites, and the Lord gave them into my hand. Why then have you come up to me this day to fight against me? Then Jephthah gathered all the men of Gilead and fought with Ephraim. And the men of Gilead struck Ephraim because they said, You are fugitives of Ephraim, you Gileadites, in the midst of Ephraim and Manasseh. And the Gileadites captured the fords of the Jordan against the Ephraimites. And when any of the fugitives of Ephraim said, let me go over, the men of Gilead said to him, are you an Ephraimite? And when he said no, they said to him, then say Shibboleth. And he said Sibboleth, for he could not pronounce it right. And then they seized him and slaughtered him at the fords of the Jordan. At that time, 42,000 of the Ephraimites fell. And Jephthah judged Israel six years. Then Jephthah the Gileadite died and was buried in his city in Gilead. After him, Ibzan of Bethlehem judged Israel. He had 30 sons and 30 daughters he gave in marriage outside his clan, and 30 daughters he brought in from outside for his sons. And he judged Israel seven years. Then Ibzan died, and he was buried in Bethlehem. After him, Elon the Zebulonite judged Israel, and he judged Israel ten years. Then Elon the Zebulonite died and was buried at Ajalon in the land of Zebulun. 
After him, Abdon, the son of Hillel, the Pirathonite, judged Israel. He had 40 sons and 30 grandsons who rode on 70 donkeys, and he judged Israel eight years. Then Abdon, the son of Hillel, the Pirathonite, died and was buried at Pirathon in the land of Ephraim, in the hill country of the Amalekites. And this is God's word. It is true and trustworthy and given in love. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we have just heard your voice speak to us in story form. And so I ask now that you would send your spirit to fill us with the very fullness of God, the fullness of your love, compassion, justice, righteousness, glory. Make us radiant in Christ as we believe the gospel. And yet, as we hear your voice, Lord, help us to not respond like Israel and harden our hearts. So strengthen us today with grace but, and confront our stubbornness where it needs to be confronted. But most of all, make us, mold us, shape us to be like Jesus, um, to be like you, to love as we have been loved. And we, we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So we get to talk about the good news of shibboleths, which is probably a phrase you have never used <laughs> in your lifetime. And shibboleth is a great word, and I'm going to convince you of that by the end. Um, but to get there, you have to get through the ugliness, the, the brutality. And, you know, when you think about the idea of using shibboleth as a password to decide whether you're in or you're out, or whether or not you're my friend or you're my enemy, I mean, this is, even though this is an ancient example, an ancient text, an ancient civil war, you actually see this pattern repeated in history. Um, last century, World War II, uh, Japanese spies were found coming to American checkpoints in the Pacific, and they would pretend to be Filipino or pretend to be American and then cause all kinds of harm, obviously in the midst of this war. And so some American soldiers started to use this shibboleth concept. So when someone who was suspicious, who seemed like a spy, would come to the checkpoint, they would tell the spies to say the word Lollapalooza, right? Because those, uh, the Japanese had a hard time pronouncing the, the L sound. And so if it came out Rara, they didn't even finish the word before they would be killed on the spot because there was no trust, right? And it, we can picture this. Because right? a shibboleth, I mean, it's horrifying, but a shibboleth in our text and in our world is, is something that is used to determine who is part of my tribe, who can I trust, who is with me, and who is against me. That's how the, the Gileadites were using it. Right? In our text, it's Jephthah and the Gileadites. They, they capture a river, and so if you want to be to, to cross the river, you had to say the, say the word shibboleth. And if you said Sibboleth, which really stinks if you have a lisp and you can't say the sh sound, right? Um, you, were, you were killed on the spot. And part of that is just because in Hebrew there's two ways to say S, a sh sound and an S sound. And it was, it was based on your geography, on your tribe. It's just how you communicated. If it's, you know, up here we say you guys, down south you say y'all. Um, if you're in Philly and someone says water and not water, you know they've crossed the Delaware River. I mean, it's, it's just that idea of, this is a shibboleth. <laughs> and, 
And I know when I read this, and if you're doing this in your devotional reading, you're going to say, okay, that's great and that's horrible. How do I apply this? How do I live it out? And this is extremely relevant and timely in our divided world. We have shibboleths that we just don't use the word shibboleth. All right, so I'm going to give you a trigger warning. I mean, just, just think of these words and how they divide. Trump. <laughs> We're talking about in Sunday school. Uh, immigration. All these, image, these, these things. Somebody says, it's my body, my choice. Just talk about abortion. See the bumper sticker, coexist. Black Lives Matter. I mean, all these are modern shibboleths, depending on where you fall on the side of that particular topic, is going to be whether people are comfortable hanging out with you, whether they're going to trust you, or assume the worst of you. Uh, we, we have them in the church. All right? They end up becoming theological shibboleths. It could be infant baptism, it could be just reformed theology in general, talking about predestination. Um, churches split over shibboleths, what color the nursery should be painted. Um, you say, if you stand up and say, the Bible is my sole authority, someone else will say, I feel differently. <laughs> That's a shibboleth. And we're just getting started. I mean, you just go down a long list of things that we have divided over. And so that's why when we come to this passage, we're, going to, we're talking about an ancient civil war that, that is here for, uh, it's useful for teaching and training in righteousness. All scripture is God-breathed and helpful, and we're going to see that. And so the question we're going to ask as we listen to this prophetic message painted negatively, how does Jesus come into that mess? How does Jesus overcome our shibboleths, our envy, and distrust of others to, to form the church to be a loving, messy, messy community where Jesus is with us? And so let's, let's look at our passage. We're going to see first how envy divides and then how grace pulls us together. So look at the passage. And the context, of course, is always important God just saved the Ephraimites, the people who were angry, from being oppressed and miserable. It was 18 years of brutality under Ammonite rule. Um, 18 years of starving and pain due to the cruelty and malice and abuse and misery. I mean, and Jephthah stopped all that. God, we don't get much detail from the, the actual battle, but Jephthah was sent out. He won the battle. And so Ephraim, the Gileadites, Manasseh, all those tribes who are on the, on the border who are being harassed and miserable have just been rescued by God through Jephthah. Right? And it's amazing how God's grace hardens and makes Ephraim angry. Right? I mean, you just, you just look at it. Jephthah gets no respect from his own people, the people he served and saved. Uh, he... He even pays the price. I mean, he, he gives up his beloved daughter. Ephraim has been served and loved and graced at great cost by Jephthah. By God, through Jephthah, I'll put it that way. And Ephraim shows up just absolutely livid at not being included. They have irrational envy and hatred of the one who saved them. And so there's this old Puritan saying that the, the same sun that melts the ice also hardens the clay. I think you're seeing that pictured here. 
The, the, the good news that, that led Jephthah to sacrifice, that led Jephthah's daughter to live a life of service, well, it caused Ephraim to grind their teeth in anger and frustration, resentment, because God's grace used the wrong person, the wrong kind of person. So look at verse 1. Ephraim says, Why did you cross over to fight against the Amalekites and not call us to go with you? We will burn your house over with fire. That is, that is an irrational escalation <laughs> by every definition. Right? Jephthah gets no respect. They want to kill him. They want to kill him and all his family. They want to destroy the Gileadites, his house. Right? And Jephthah gets no respect from his own people. He gets no respect from the commentators either. And, and so everybody assumes Jephthah is this terrible, terrible guy. I'm just going to list one paragraph. I'm not going to tell you who wrote it. But this is what people look at, at Jephthah like. And remember, he's physically representing God. He, the Lord is with the judge in, in all of his deeds. Right, here's what one commentator says. This egotistical man proves himself the consummate manipulator who opportunistically seizes power over his own tribesmen. But then he brutalizes, right, with the sword, his fellow Israelites. Jephthah is the ethical and spiritual low point. He never cared about the people he governed, nor about the God he, to whom they belong. That because civil war erupted, they make Jephthah the scapegoat. And I, I see this completely differently, and so I'm going to try and convince you of that, which helps you see Jephthah following in the footsteps or blazing a trail. Jesus is a better picture of this, a clearer picture. But let's go outside the camp with Jephthah. He's being assaulted by shame. He gets no respect. And this is going to help us get to Jesus. All right, look, Ephraim showed up with an army at, at Jephthah's door and said, we want to kill you. How do you blame Jephthah for that, <laughs> frankly? They crossed over the Jordan River and said, how dare you not include us in the battle? We will kill you. That their envy of not getting the glory, at not being included, at being mad at grace, uh, provokes them into a murderous rage. And so how do you respond to somebody who wants to kill you? How do you respond, how do you respond to unfair, slander, unexpected cruelty and accusations? Even on a minor scale, much less I want to burn you down. Right. Jephthah does resort to diplomacy here. Right. He's trying to use words. That's been his pattern all along. To fight with words and then, then with a sword if necessary. He reminds Ephraim that the, they, I called for help, you didn't come. You had the opportunity. You left us out hanging. And if, if you know the geography, this really helps understand it. You have the Jordan River here. To the west would be the Ephraimites. To the east is where Gilead and some of the other tribes of Israel are, and, and the Ammonites are coming through Gilead to get to Ephraim. And so Gilead's kind of like the... Jephthah and his people are the cushion. They're the ones who get, get assaulted first. And so they're the ones who fight the battle. They're the, the cushion. They're the ones who protect them. And instead of being grateful, Ephraim's furious. They're content to watch Gilead suffer for their behalf and then mad about it when, they, when they're rescued. And so that, I, I see this as the, the enemies here is, is Ephraim. Jephthah and, Gilead, and the Gileadites are forced into a war of self-defense 
and they used the shibboleth concept to see who was for them and who was against them. And the haunting thing is there is no good ending. No matter how you look at this, Jephthah had blood on his hands. It's just blood in the Jordan River. Um, they take the fords, and you can, you can picture how it would go of spies behind enemy lines, and, and that conversation would say, are you an Ephraimite? And they say, no, I'm just here. I just crossed the river to visit my grandmother. Now I'm going home to my kids. Let me pass. Say Shibboleth. It says Sibboleth, and then they know he's lying. And so, the tragedy of the text is unprovoked hostility. It's, it's envy. It's pride. It's just this ugly division within the people of God. And that's the whole point of the story, is that when you reject God and his grace, when you don't accept God as king, your relationships just completely disintegrate. Because you're losing the image of God, you're losing the, the covenant of love that calls you to love your neighbor. Right. And so, that's the picture. We're get, it's going to get uglier as we get to the end of this book. But the end of Jephthah's life is sad and haunting. No matter how you look at this, the Civil War just ended poorly. Jephthah died after six years. You don't get the usual refrain of there being lest, of, lest, of being rest in the land. That's the same with the next three judges. It just says they lived, they judged, but things weren't getting better. It was getting worse. And so you have the picture that all God the king's judges and all God the king's donkeys couldn't put Israel back together again. Right? Everything's just falling apart. So we have to ask, how do you apply this? What divided God's people? What's Ephraim's problem? What's the burr in their saddle? And really, what lurks in every Christian community? Because this is the people of God falling apart. Um, how do you apply the pride and envy of Ephraim? This is what threatens every community. And here's, here's what we're going to look at. Pride and envy, more at envy. And pride and envy are close cousins that usually come together. They, they always work together to destroy a community. And pride is this idea of haughty eyes, hands that shed innocent blood from the Proverbs, hearts that devise these wicked plans, feet that make it happen, uh, a false witness that breathes out lies, and, a, and someone who sows discord among the brothers. That's Proverbs chapter 6. Pride is the killer of every community. I mean, if you want to diagnose why churches explode in anger and frustration with one another, the root of that is always going to be pride. I mean, look at verse 4. This is how the Ephraimites look down on the Gileadites. It's an obscure, ancient uh, racial slur. I don't know how else to put it. It says, you are fugitives of Ephraim in the midst of Ephraim and Manasseh. That doesn't hurt me at all. <laughs> right? It probably wouldn't hurt you if I flung that at you. But what it's saying is, you live surrounded by Manasseh and Ephraim, the true Israelites. You're just immigrants. You're just refugees. You're not really God's people. You're less than us, the superior, the best of God's people. Right? When God chose his people, he was looking at us. He didn't really want you. That kind of attitude. Right? It's the idea that, Gilead, you are on the wrong side of the tracks, you're not like us. You're the armpit of Israel. That, that's what's behind that accusation. Even though God raised up Jephthah from the Gileadites, 
haughty eyes, pride, looking down, using their words to show to spread discord, uh, brutality among the among the family, and that's what happens. Right? Begins with pride. We start to use labels to to dehumanize people we disagree with. And then you're left with shibboleths to determine who is with us and who is against us. And it doesn't take much imagination to see how we do that today. I mean, just look at the current cultural conversation about immigration and who is really American and who is not. Um, Go in every small town, they'll look at the neighboring small town as a, a more humiliating place to grow up. Right? I mean, I'm not going to name names here. But that's just how it is. And that's pride. We use pride to destroy communities where we see ourselves as the best of the community and people who don't think like us are lower. And just like the Ephraimites, we fling it on others. That's, that's the pain. That's what starts to tear apart a community. When we stop seeing people and we start using labels. Second, pride comes with envy. And envy, like the Ephraimites, usually comes as an army amassed together. So whenever you find envy in the New Testament, it's always a collection of of attitudes. Enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, and envy. That's Galatians 5. It hunts together like a pack of jackals. And Envy is what the ancients called invidia, to use the Latin term. And here's what envy is. It's just being angry at someone else's success. Furious that someone else is not down where you are. It's raging because God, well, Ephraim is raging because God used somebody that they see less. And they can't stand to see a lesser brother step up above them. So you think about it this way. Jealousy is I want what you have. If you look at somebody in your field and they got the management position you applied for, and you can be jealous. Envy creeps in and says, not only do I want what they have, but I want to make their life miserable and bring them down to where I am. Envy gets angry and wants to tear down someone else's success. Whereas Buchner would say, envy is wanting others to be as unsuccessful as you are. (laughs) I I think we get that idea, right? When... Somebody in your field hits a monumental, monumental achievement and instead of celebrating where they have gotten, the gifts that God has given them and the beauty of their life and the wonder of what they've done, we weep that I wasn't chosen. Why not me? One actor put it this way in 1948 that when Sir Laurence Olivier was getting all the accolades for the way he played Hamlet, the critics raved and I wept. Wept with anger, Envy, frustration. See, Ephraim, I think, is really practical and helpful because they're showing you physically what envy looks like. They're showing you how not to live a life of love. And we only envy those who are close to us. That's why it's so dangerous in the church. Ephraim is envious of their neighbors. They're not envious of the Assyrians. That could happen. But in our text, 
right? It's, it's creeped into the family. It's creeped into the, the relationship. It, you'll find envy between coworkers and neighbors. You'll find envy in families. You'll find envy in churches. But most often, you will not find envy cross disciplines, meaning we're most vulnerable to it when uh, we envy those closest to our gifts and callings. Politicians envy other politicians. Uh, musicians envy other musicians. Athletes will envy other professional athletes. Pastors will envy other pastors. But you don't find pastors wishing that they could be, well, most of them, that they could be politicians. <laughs> you know, I'm not jealous of LeBron James. I'm not envious. I don't have that skill. I'm not envious of uh, this guy named Alex Honnold who climbed El Capitan without a rope. Right? That, just, that just makes me sweat gallons of, <laughs> gallons of liquid out of my hands. But within the, the ministry community, that's where I'm most tempted. You know? Why is their church huge and our church small? I'm faithful. Um, see, the tragedy of, of judges... And just the church in general, we, we, envy creeps in with those around us. Both Gilead and Ephraim were saved by grace, but Ephraim was furious because someone else was graced before them and exalted higher. And they're both rescued. And so that's why this is called a deadly sin, because it's at the root of all kinds of horrific relational breakdowns. Now, there's an ancient picture of, of envy. Uh, this guy named Giotto, an Italian artist, it, it really does help you visualize what envy looks like. And he paints a picture of envy right next to a picture of charity, of generosity, because that's its opposite. Right? So envy, in his mind, is an older person whose eyes are angry. You look at the person's feet, it's just flames coming up. It's burning the person. Right? They set themselves on fire. Uh, there's a, a snake, the venom of asps, coming out. But instead of lashing out at someone else, it's actually coming back at the person because envy just destroys itself. And then it has a hand outstretched like it's going to steal or, or, or cause harm. And it's right next to a picture of a woman named Charity, who is taking a gift from God, has a basket full of all kinds of uh, delicious food with a smile on her face, basically open and saying, come and, come and rejoice and share with, with what God's given me. Two complete different, completely different attitudes. And when you come to Ephraim, that's what you get the picture. Envy caused harm to Ephraim more than anybody else. They were left in death and ashes. The fire burned themselves, as, and it hurts others. Right. So you just pause and be pastoral. This is, this is pointed, but that's part of prophetic literature. It comes at you with an arrow at your heart. Where are you most tempted to envy? Right. And I think one of the ways you can figure out where envy is, is dangerous in your and my life, I'm picking on me here, is ask what shibboleths you have. Where do you draw the line in the sand? Because those are the things you value most. It's an ever-present enemy. It's lurking in the shadows. And envy, what it does, is says, God, you're blessing all the wrong kind of people in all the wrong ways. If I had your chair, that's not how I would do it. 
And so we come to the end of the text, and this would be a really depressing place to stop. <laughs> and so you've got to ask, pull back, and, and uh, the whole point is, Israel is not submitting to God as king. How does God, how does God take a family that does not like each other, that does not trust each other, uh, that, that there is no reconciliation, there's just blood in the literal water in the, in the ford of the Jordan? How does God heal envy and reunite the people of God? And Here's how he does it. God does it with a shibboleth. In the Jordan River. And this, is, this is fascinating to see the connection here. Because right? in our text, in our day, envy and shibboleths divide. But God uses a shibboleth to bring and heal God's family and bring them together and actually make the family bigger and full of even more different people. Because you know what a shibboleth is in Hebrew? I mean, we barely know what it is in English. I'm not expecting you to know the answer. It's either a a husk of grain or floodwaters. And so if you are a Gileadite standing in a river, you're just saying, say flood. It makes more sense to say, what they're they're telling the the Ephraimites to say, say floodwaters. And so shibboleth is a flood used to judge. Water is used to divide. Which you can start to see the connection then to baptism. Because in the Jordan River, that's what Israel did. They walked through the water on dry land and they were publicly shown this new generation to be God's beloved children. Not under God's judgment because of the grace God given them through the blood of the Lamb. Uh, you You connect this to Noah and the flood. The shibboleth, the flood of waters, the flood of judgment that declared who was graced and who was not. Noah and his family, those outside. Egypt and the Red Sea, you had the Egyptians and the Israelites going through the waters, the shibboleth, the flood. And those covered by the blood of the Lamb, the Israel, God's beloved firstborn son, they went through safe, not because they deserved it, but because God loved them and forgave them and graced them. The Egyptians were on the wrong side of the shibboleth. The waters fell over them. They were judged. They died. And so when Jesus, centuries later, steps into the waters of the Jordan River to undergo a shibboleth, a baptism, it is a loaded story to those who are listening. And the word used to divide Jesus from the rest of humanity coming from God the Father. Um, It's a a word that has not been heard since Genesis chapter 1. You are my son with whom I'm well pleased. A benediction. The perfect son. Right? And if you know the context, this is what happened. Jesus goes out to be baptized, but the, the forerunner, John the Baptist... What he's doing, he's out there in the desert and he's calling people to come into the Jordan and confess their sins and be baptized to say out loud, I'm I'm a moral failure. I'm more like Ephraim. If God were to come, I would not survive his judgment. That's the whole point of going into the water. And that's what's going to rebuild the community, the family of God. When everybody admits their sin and they're saved by grace and they're a mixed multitude, all these different people coming together, following Jesus. And so Jesus goes in and he doesn't confess sin. He's being declared to be the perfect one. 
He's declared to be a perfect one, to fulfill all righteousness, to, to, represent every, to represent the imperfect. And then he goes and lives the perfect life we should have lived, and then dies the death we should have died, and raises again to build the family of God. I mean, it's astounding. Jesus' baptism, the shibboleth, is the beginning of God saving a people by grace, bringing together enemies, Jesus the perfect one, who represents and loves and lives for you and I, who are tainted by envy. So, and then after the baptism, Jesus walks in the footsteps of Jephthah. Right? He's torn apart by the envy of his own people. They don't just say to Jesus, I want to burn your house with fire. They literally bring the house down on him. They crucify him. They kill him. They put him to death. All while Jesus, he doesn't respond with a sword of judgment. He responds with a word of grace. Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. So God could rebuild this family that used to hate each other. And now as they experience this otherworldly grace and love, turn to each other and forgive. That's why I said, Judges shows us the ugliness to get us to the beauty of what God is doing through Jesus. Psalm 69 is the proof. I mean, Psalm 69 is about Jesus. David praying, everybody hates me. I'm up to the floodwaters, the shibboleth in my, to my neck. I'm drowning in judgment here. And then at the end, David prays this prayer that, uh, well, everybody's insults have broken my heart. Shame hurts. So that I'm in despair, I looked for pity and got nothing. I looked for comforters and found none. This is Jesus. They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. That's exactly what happened to Christ on the cross. He bore the shame, despised the shame for the joy set before him. Us, the family of God. And here's the beauty, and here's the end result. Because this is the promise all along. This is, this is what's the promise. God knew that, that Ephraim and Judah, the, the, the 12 tribes of Israel that are meant to be unified, a picture of unity, a family together, celebrating grace. He, he knew that they would scatter and divide just like Bab- Babel of old. And so you get to Isaiah 11, and God promised, you know what, one day the jealousy, you could add it, talk about the envy the jealousy of Ephraim will depart. It's going to go away. Ephraim will no longer be jealous of Judah, and Judah shall not harass Ephraim. It's this picture of, of the brothers, the family of God, <laughs> not hating each other, but getting along. And the way he does it is through that Jesus-like servant, the one promised of old, who's lifted up high. And it's not just Jews, ethnic Jews, who get along. They come running. No, it's people from Africa, from Asia, from Europe who are going to gather around God's chosen king. And, and Isaiah says, Then you will see the wolf lie down with the lamb, the children playing with the venomous snakes. Uh, there will be no harm done in my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord, his grace, as the waters cover the sea. This is how we're going to end. This is how we deal with envy in the church. We have something Ephraim didn't, and that's the foot of the cross. 
you know, the, the, the suffering of the deliverer, the one who said, okay, you hate me, kill me. And what we're supposed to do is when you see that it's my envy, my jealousy, my pride that put Christ to death on the cross, you're left with that question, how can I look down on anyone else? I contributed, it's, it's Chesterton all over again, answering the problem, what's wrong with the world? And writing to the newspaper and saying, dear sirs, the problem with the world is me. And, and the way you do it is, is, is this, whoever is truly humbled, says another pastor, if you're humbled by the cross, by grace, it's going to help you not be easily angry, nor harsh or critical of others. You're going to be compassionate and tender to the infirmities, the weaknesses of your fellow sinners. That if there is a difference between you and someone else, it's grace alone that's made it that way. It's not you. Right? You'll know that, that I, I'll talk about me here, have the seeds of every evil in my own heart. And under all trials and afflictions, we can look to, to the Lord, the hand of the Lord, and, and acknowledge that if I am suffering, I'm suffering much less than I deserve. That's the guy who wrote Amazing Grace. Right? And so the idea is that within the gospel, within the cross, is the way to heal community. Because we have a concrete reality that I'm not the best example of a human being. <laughs> I'm a sinner which helps me not look down on those surrounding me. And I can welcome strangers to my table. Right. And if we're Reformed Christians, <laughs> and we believe and proclaim total depravity, that every part of me is tainted by selfishness, well, it should be all the more reason to celebrate grace and, and, and be equipped to love others. Humility. And the fascinating thing is that you come to, the, to Acts, that's exactly what happened, is they all stood up together and said, African, Asian, European, you name it, we killed Jesus and we are gathering at the foot of Jesus, devoted to one another, uh, breaking bread together, eating together. I mean, the, 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 the early church was a collection of people so radically different that the ancient world did not have a category for it. Men and women, um, rich and poor, different tribes, different nations, the, the, the people on both sides of the track ate together in those days. And this is what I think is going to help us as a church just embody that as we believe the gospel and are surrounded by our post-Christian neighbors when we are able to say, I vote Republican and I vote Democrat, for example, and, and still eat together, that's a, that's a major thing. <laughs> You know, when, when politics is not our whole life, or when these divisive issues we can say with respect, I don't agree, but I love you. That, that's otherworldly. People don't know how to deal with that. Because if this is what's going to make us frustrating and attractive, if Jesus and his grace are our shibboleth, the thing that divides us from the rest of the world, we are going to be attractive and frustrating as a church. Right? We're going to be attractive because we're going to bring different people together, frankly. You're, you're, the idea is that every Christian home would be, would be, be willing to host Christian and non-Christian. Right? We're going to forgive one another as Christ has forgiven us. That's the call. 
we're going to be frustrating because we're going to say Jesus is the only way to do that. And that's what Jesus said. I lived, I died, I rose again. I'm the ascended Lord of all. Therefore, I am the way, the truth, the life. That's going to frustrate our neighbors. But we're going to be attractive when we don't resort to the sword like Ephraim, when we don't resort to manipulation to get what we want, when we use, we're content to use words and reason. That's the wisdom from above, open to reason, gentle, impartial. <laughs> it's Christ-like. We're going to be frustrating because we're going to talk about shibboleths. We're going to use the word judgment and baptism. To say the reality, if you reject Jesus, you don't know God. You're rejecting God, and hell and judgment is a real thing. But it doesn't mean I look down on you. It means I love you more. And we're going to be attractive because we speak with a gentleness and respect that reflects the gospel of grace. And we're going to be frustrating because we do use fire in relationships with our enemies. Did you know that? You know, Ephraim said to his brother, we will burn your house with fire. The Christian says to their neighbor, we will burn your head with fire. Coals of kindness. A cup of cold water in Christ's name. So bring meals. Shovel snow. Make cookies. You know, all these just little things to people that we wouldn't naturally get along with. It's going to be frustrating. That's the whole point. Say, who are you? You don't fit in any human category. So you can end with this. Are you able, as Christians, to sit with brothers and sisters who have different theological and political views and talk about them? Do you use scripture as our authority to talk about it? Are you able to, to listen and talk to your neighbors about these things? Or do you have other shibboleths other than Jesus? And that's, that's the question of this passage. So here's, here is Paul's picture of Christian community from Romans chapter 12, and then we'll pray. Paul says, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live with harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. And if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. <laughs> the cross of Christ gives you the power and the freedom to do that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jephthah and uh, the, the willingness that he had to be afflicted for your namesake. And we thank you even more for Jesus who suffered, who was despised and rejected, who who loved us even to death on a cross, and I pray that would invade our heart, grip us with uh, your grace so that it would just infect and infiltrate our relationships, that we would learn to love our neighbors as ourselves. Because you first loved us. And so, Lord, as we go forth, I pray you would make Hope Church a community of friends uh, who are learning how to forgive, forgive our debtors because you have forgiven our debts. Give us a taste of the place where lion and lamb, natural enemies, now lie together, now spend time together in peace. So bless our homes, bless our church with the gift of unity in Christ, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.